in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, and we're in Colossians chapter 3 at the end. And uh, we'll be going from Colossians 3 and verse 22 to verse 1 of chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 17 and on for sake of context. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to not only understand these instructions, these commands, the truths therein to understand the intention to the original audience, but also to understand the implications and the applications for our lives in this day and age and this time and place according to our own circumstances. Help us to receive these instructions gladly. Help me to preach clearly. Pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision Um, and clarity to impact the hearts and minds of your people. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And we come to the end of chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Colossians. As we've seen, this section of Paul's letter consists of his instructions on biblical sanctification, how how we are to be holy, and with that, um, worship, because they're, they're connected, they're interconnected. Um, and he begins in chapter 3 and with the context of our individual lives as believers, and then um, he, in a sense, moves outward to uh, the church and how we are to behave within the context of the church and our interactions with one another, and then um, to the family, as we saw last week, and, and the different roles within the family and how um, we are to act and behave and um, exercise those roles. And then now he um, goes into the context of the workplace. And there is a bit of um, overlap, especially in the ancient world of um, the workplace and the the family, the household, because um, many times those were the same, Um, especially in an agrarian culture. um, Your workplace was the house and the farm for for most people. Um, Some people had um, employment in the marketplace, and, and there was... Um, some business and, and shops, but um, for many people, they, they worked on farms. And uh, he starts um, 
with two roles, two roles or individuals to which he is writing to here. And you could, in a sense, also imply a third role in verse 23, but whatever the case, everyone falls into one of these roles, master, slave, or the third could be a self-employed free man, like a, a merchant. Um, and I know that almost all of your English translations say bondservant, but it should read slave. And this is somewhat of a lengthy quote I, I'm going to share with you, but um, this comes from uh, John MacArthur's book, Slave, uh, which he wrote um, not too long ago, and it, it's a, a very good book. I, I, I would recommend it to you if you have not read it, if you do not But he writes this in the beginning of this book. He says this, Scripture's prevailing description of the Christian's relationship to Jesus Christ is a slave-master relationship. But do a casual read through your English New Testament and you won't see it. The reason for this is simple as it is shocking. The Greek word for slave has been covered up by being mistranslated in almost every English version, going back to both the King James Version and the Geneva Bible that predated it. Though the word slave, doulos in Greek, appears 124 times in the original text, it it is correctly translated only once in the King James. Most of our modern translations do only slightly better. It almost seems like a conspiracy. Instead of translating doulos as slave, these translations consistently substitute the word servant in its place. Ironically, the Greek language has at least half a dozen words that can mean servant. The word doulos is not one of them. Whenever it is used both in the New Testament and in secular Greek literature, it always and only means slave. While it is true that the duties of slave and servant may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, autonomy, or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property to the point that in the eyes of the law, they were regarded as things rather than persons. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. And as we you know, read that and um, that quote, and we, we consider you know, that term in bond servants as is, you know, in most of our English translations, and, and we might become skeptical, but um, there's, there's a couple reasons why the translators of many English translations did not translate it as slave. Um, part of it is um, our modern conceptions of slavery, and especially in the most recent um, American um, and and British colonial empire, um, the slavery and the oppression that um, we know of most recently, um, which in many instances was also the case in the Greco-Roman world, but not exactly the same. There's also a sense that um, in the Latin translation of the the Greek New Testament, um, the term for... uh, uh, slave is service, which can also be mistranslated from the Latin into English to servant. So there, there's a couple reasons. But the truth of the matter is that throughout 
most of world history, and especially in the ancient world, slavery was a reality. It was everywhere. You were, for the most part, either a master or a slave. And, um, you know, the, the characteristics of, of slavery changed from time and place. Certainly there was oppression. Certainly there was cruelty. Certainly there was abuse. But that wasn't always the case. Um, oftentimes uh, an empire uh, or um, one nation or a tribe or e- even a, a city-state would conquer another city-state and then they would enslave the women and children. It, it just was common practice, whether it was right or wrong, that, that was just the nature of life in the ancient world. And all the way up until probably about the Middle Ages. And, and yet, even throughout many parts of the world, it, it still happens today, except it's, it's given different, different terms, human trafficking, or, or it, it's just um, a servant, or you know, it, it, it's not exactly the same. And in the Greco-Roman world, even in the, the very ancient Near East, um, you could be a slave and you could be a doctor, you could be an administrator, you could be um, a, a house servant. You, like, uh, you know, two, two of the, the prime examples in, in the Bible are, are, are Joseph and Daniel. Um, you could rise to high position. Most often, you were at a low position, you were a menial laborer, but you could be Almost any position um, except the headmaster. The Bible does not condone slavery, as some might say it does. And those who say it does, they, they, they neither know the Bible nor history fully. The Bible does not condone slavery, but it does regulate it. It does give instructions concerning it, illustrations and commands. Even in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, it says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That was in the, the, the Old Testament law, that you weren't to kidnap and, and, and be a man-stealer. However, there are laws concerning uh, slavery. And so I'd like you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. And just briefly, I, I, I want you to understand a bit of the context, um, not just in the Greco-Roman world, but just in the ancient world in general and, and before our modern age of slavery. And, and a little bit about what the, the Bible says about slavery and the, the Old Testament laws. Leviticus chapter 25 and uh, verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who may have been born in your land, that they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. 
You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as a time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionally for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few, few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there, there are other um, passages concerning slavery and the treatment of slaves. And we can see in just that one passage how um, the Israelites were to treat their slaves. They were to be different from the nations. They were to treat their slaves uh, fairly and with justice and kindness. And, and the, even to um, release them every seven years to offer them freedom. Slavery was, in a sense, a, a form of welfare um, for the, the Israelites and, and for um, even some other parts of other nations. Uh, but, um, you know, if someone, uh, their crops failed, they, they, they got poor, so poor, they could sell themselves into slavery and, and even, um, ideally, to one of their clansmen who would take care of them. The Bible does not um, condone it, it regulates it. This was a reality, and the Jews were to treat their slaves differently than the nations, and, and even fast forward to the New Testament, and, and there's uh, regulations regarding slavery. The New Testament doesn't call, um, in a sense, uh, uh, believers to overturn the socioeconomic uh, uh, culture or society. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 20 to 24, he says this um, to the Corinthian church, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? It also should be uh, translated slave. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is also a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And essentially, what Paul is saying is to entrust yourselves to God's providence and to honor him in your conduct wherever he has in a sense, place you to understand that, that God is sovereign. And, and yes, you are created in the image of God and everybody has inherent dignity and worth and value. And so ideally, you should be free. But the world is broken. 
and things aren't what they should be. If you can avail yourself of your freedom, if you can live as a free man, then do it. If not, honor God where you are in the circumstances in which you are. And that's, in a sense, what, what Paul is saying here to the Colossians. In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives four commands to, for the Colossians and for us to glorify Christ in our work. And as you can see, these commands are primarily for slaves and masters because in the ancient world, you were either one or the other. And that could also change. You could be a master and then either through war or, or natural disaster or, or a, a turn of events, you could end up becoming a slave and vice versa. However, even in our modern context, these four commands, they still have applications for us. And so I want you to see four instructions as to how we are to glorify Christ in our work. Four instructions as to how we are to glorify Christ in our work. First, obey your boss. Obey your boss. Uh, verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Obey your boss. And he says, in, in, in all things, in everything, and, and, and at all times. And th this doesn't go against, uh, you know, uh, God's commands. You know, if our, our boss is, is or our boss is asking us to do something sinful or illegal or immoral, we can, we can in a sense, respectfully refuse, respectfully appeal. We can stand our ground and say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's sinning against God. And, and in a sense, uh, I mean, we, we get that illustration in Joseph, and Potiphar's wife, who, um, though she was not his master, she was, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, had some level of authority over him. He said, I cannot sin against God. Obey your boss in everything and at all times. In the hard things, you know, we, we've, most of us have held several different jobs or have had a job where um, we've had hard days, we've had hard duties, um, we have um, been tempted to quit, been tempted to cut corners, been tempted not to work, tempted to be lazy, and some of us have sinned in those ways, either cutting corners, being lazy, not obeying, not listening, um, saying that's, that's a stupid uh, instruction. But we're to obey our boss in everything. First and foremost, I mean, we, we should be on time. If, if they ask us to be there at a certain time, we should be there on time. We, we should not... Um, uh, cut corners on our work, the tasks that they give us. They ask us to stay over. We should stay over. Whatever they ask us to do in the hard things, we should do it. They're our boss. We honor God by obeying them. We also, in the easy things, in the hard things, in the easy things, in everything at all times, you know, many, many um, preachers, um, they'll use this illustration, and it's true. Um, most of us have been in careers, been in jobs where there's a quota. You know, they, you have to make, you know, 
you have an eight-hour shift, and, and, and you have to make 50 widgets um, in that eight hours. And you come in, and, and you realize, um, you know, it doesn't take you long to realize that um, it doesn't take you all eight hours to make those 50 widgets. You can do it a lot quicker. And so then you're faced with the, the uh, conundrum, okay, what should I do with the rest of this time? Because, you know, there's other employees, and they're sitting around, and they, they finish their 50 widgets in an hour, and now they're just sitting around, so what, what do I do? And the answer is not clear. You should work. But the principle is that you obey your boss. So you should work hard. You're there to work. You're not there to steal your time, steal an employer's time. Um, you shouldn't just blindly make, okay, well, I'll make 200 widgets. And I'm just going to you know, show everybody else that they're a bunch of lazy bums. That might be the right answer. But first, you need to go to your boss. Because chances are that your boss understands that it only takes an hour to make 50 widgets. Or whatever the case, now I'm using that, that you understand the illustration. That could be applied to um, many workplace situations. But you go to your boss and say, hey, um, you, know, you asked me to make 50 widgets a day. Um, I, it's only been a couple hours. I've done 50 widgets. Is there anything else that you want me to do? Or did I do it wrong? Um, is there in, you know, perhaps maybe you missed a step, maybe you're not doing it as good, maybe they're not uh, high quality widgets, you know, <laughs> um, maybe the other people are cutting corners, maybe they learn faster than you, maybe, perhaps, there's a, a higher uh, production issue. And no, we're, we're, as a company, we're only supposed to produce that many because of our supplier, or whatever, because... Um, we're going to sell that. So, no, I don't want you to make 200 widgets. You know what? Maybe I'll give you something else to do. Or, you know what? I don't care if you sit there. And that's, you know, we, we need to not steal money from our employer or steal time. But at the end of the day, whatever the boss says goes. So it, it, whether he says, go ahead and make 200 widgets or do something else, or, I don't care if you sit there. You say, well, you don't care if I sit here? Are you sure? Am I going to get you in trouble? Am I going to get anybody else in trouble? Whatever. At the end of the day, you obey your boss. Because it can go either way. You know, I, I've been at several jobs and, and where, you know, work all day long. 14 hours, 18 hours, you know, especially you know, in the, in the military, and, and you can work, you know, beyond deployment, uh, months, every day, 18, 20, 20 hour days, you know, working a couple days at a time. And then there's also days where we're not doing anything. The principle is that you obey your boss. You go to your boss. What does the boss want? Does he want you to sit there, or does he want you to work hard? Whatever. He's the authority. You appeal to him. And if it seems illegal, or if it seems sinful, or if it seems immoral, or if it seems unfair, then you clarify so that you have a clear conscience. And so there's this principle that you should always be communicating with your boss constantly to make sure that you understand their intentions 
their wishes, what they desire, what they command you to do, because they're your boss. In this day and age, we have all sorts of different workplace situations, especially with remote working, and there's unions, and, and you know, your, your job isn't to go into the workplace and overturn the whole work culture, even if it's wrong. Even if, even if it is, and this is notorious for government and union jobs, that things don't work efficiently, things aren't right, people take advantage. But you're, you're not to be, in a sense, a workplace culture warrior. You are to be a hard worker. You are to be an honest worker. You are to work with integrity. But you communicate with your boss to make sure their intentions are right. We need to give and receive grace. Because some of us, we, we can take these commands, and rightfully so, we're going to be a hard, honest worker. We're going to work with integrity. We're going to work hard. We should. But some situations, and this is especially in, during, during COVID, it's happened. A lot of workplaces, either they just didn't have the work, especially a service industry or whatever. I remember working and, and asking my boss because I, I didn't have much to do as, as a hospice chaplain. And, and I'd say, hey, um, I, can't, you know, I can't go visit people. The facilities are locked down. Um, you know, do you want me to do anything else? Well, yeah, there's some online training you can do. Okay, well, I've done all that. Do you want me to do anything else? Um, maybe some work around the office. Okay, um, you know what? It doesn't seem like, hey, boss, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of work to do. I'm fine clocking out early if you want me to do that. That's fine. I, don't, I, don't, I can clock out early. No, no, she said, we need to keep you certain hours. Well, whatever the boss says goes. That means if they want you to work hard or they want you not to work at all or they don't have much work, at the end of the day, whatever the boss says go. You, you obey the boss and you communicate with the boss and you don't compare yourself to other workers people in other industries. You obey your boss in everything and at all times. And with sincerity and integrity. With sincerity and integrity. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And there's, as I've often shared as we've been going through the, this letter to the Colossians that it's in many ways a parallel letter to the book of Ephesians. And, and, and um, uh, Paul's letter to Ephesians, he has the, the same instructions, but he expands on them a little bit. He clarifies it a little bit more, and we can go there in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 5 to 8. He says this. He says this, uh, many of the same instructions, but a little bit more clearly. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And we are, we are to work obeying our earthly masters our bosses, sincerely as we would Christ. That we're, in a sense, working for Christ in our workplace. We have sincere motives. 
We're mindful of our testimony. Because wherever we work, eventually they should find out that you're a believer. And, and that can be, sometimes that can be a scary thing. Because as, as Paul said to the Corinthians, not many mighty, not many noble, if you were called. If we're honest, most of us, we, we weren't the best worker in our workplace. And, and maybe that's not due to laziness. Maybe that's just our, our skill, our abilities. Maybe we just had, had hard jobs that, you know, I'm not the best at this. There's some other person who's better at it than me. We should strive to be the best, to honor Christ in our testimony. But if we fail, if we stumble, if we don't know what to do or we're not clear on the instructions, we go to our boss. We ask our boss. Always clarify. Always communicate with your boss because they're a boss. That's who, and you obey them as you would Christ with sincere motives. You're to be genuine in your interactions and speech, not, not manipulating, not playing office politics, not spreading gossip, which can be, which can be hard because every workplace has politics. You, you get enough people together, enough people, uh, uh, enough sinners in one place, and there's going to be politics, there's going to be manipulating, there's going to be jockeying for position or um, just you know, popularity. Everybody would like you. You'd be pleasing. And, and as, as pleasing as you are, as nice as you are, there's workplaces where people are going to crack jokes. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to be mean. They're going to be rude. You need to be careful. You need to be careful about our speech, about our interactions, that we're not working or interacting as um, people pleasers. When he says not by way of eye service, that means... Uh, you know, working really hard while the boss sees or your coworkers see, but then when they, they get away, then slacking off and, and, you know, well, they're not, you know, the old, the old adage, when the wolf is away, the sheep play. Or, you know, some people use cat and mice. <laughs> but, you know, you've heard it before, I'm sure. Many of us are guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. But that ought not to be true. We should be genuine. We should be sincere. We should have integrity. Have integrity in where you are, your activities, your accomplishments, the, the use of your time, the expenses. If you're given a, a, a company credit card or you're, you're, you're told to go buy something, then and be sure that you are honest in, in the receipts. In your location, if you're late for something, and, and I know... Um, you know, I lived in L.A. for, for quite a bit, and it's, L.A. is notorious for traffic. And wh- whether you're honestly late or not, you can always use the traffic excuse. I, I mean, you could be almost a half hour late and, and say, oh, I hit some traffic. And they'd be like, oh, I understand. I hit some traffic too. Whether you were honestly late or there, you could use that excuse in a pinch, always. You could use it almost every... Every day, <laughs> you know, but that shouldn't be the case. If you think you are running late, you, you call your boss. And, and you should be, you know, you should have the character at work that, um, you know, 
in the instance that you are late, they should be like, oh, I don't, man, Bill's never late. He's always on time. What's, you know, they should be, you know, what's wrong? Because you should have that type of character. You know, the old adage, like, you know, you know I know Tom, I, I could set my watch by him because he's consistent. We should be consistent. Obey your boss in everything and at all times with sincerity and integrity. Paul tells Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, he says, All who are under a yoke as bondservants also should be slave, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And in that first, you know, those, those first two verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you know, the, the key phrase in these commands is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's the key thing in your work. It's, it's not how much you accomplish or how much you make or um, even so much the respect. It's that the honor of Christ would be held high so, so that people can say, you know, unbelievers couldn't say, oh, yeah, Christians, oh, yeah. I have a couple in my workplace. Let me tell you about them. The testimony should be like, I want to hire more Christians. Tell me. Is there anybody at your church who needs a job? Let me know because I, there's an opening. That should be the testimony. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So first, we are to obey your boss. Second, work for Christ. Work for Christ. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In this, this verse, and there's a couple others in the New Testament, this is the principle or the passage from which... Um, we have derived, and many throughout the era of the Reformation, the Puritans have derived what has come, become known as the Puritan work ethic. The Puritan work ethic, which has transformed Western society. We don't see it so much now because Western society is, in a sense, crumbling. But there is this principle of the Puritan work ethic. Leland Riken, he says this, he says, The Puritans declared the sanctity of all honorable work. In so doing, they rejected a centuries-old division of callings into sacred and secular. This Puritan rejection of the dichotomy between sacred and secular work has far-reaching implications. It judges every honorable job to be of intrinsic value and integrates every vocation with a Christian spiritual life. It makes every job consequential by regarding it as the arena for glorifying and obeying God and for expressing love through service to a neighbor. What he's saying is that, you know, for, for many centuries in Christendom, and sadly even today, there was this sacred and secular divide that if you really wanted to serve God, you would become a priest 
or a monk or um, a pastor or a missionary. You wouldn't have just a secular job, just a menial job. And Scripture, Scripture rejects that notion. Because we are to trust in God's sovereignty that he has given us the abilities that he has given us. He has placed us in the time and place in which he has placed us in the circumstances. And yes, we do plan and we make decisions and we set goals. But he has given us our work. And we are to do our work wherever he places us for his glory. We are to work for his glory. And, you know, there's... um, It used to be before digital watches and quartz watches. You know where the best watches came from? Swiss, from Switzerland, Swiss watches, Rolex. Um, And there's other crafts um, of high craftsmanship that came from Switzerland. And there was this culture of high-quality craftsmanship. And the reason for that stems back to John Calvin and his teaching that you are to work as unto the Lord and to do your work with excellence. Whereas, and I believe it's Spurgeon, I may be wrong, who said, you know, if, if you want to be a, a, a Christian shoemaker, don't make shoes with crosses on them. Just make the best shoes and people will buy them and you will honor Christ. That's, we are to do our work with excellence as unto the Lord, and it will honor him. We are to work for Christ by embracing his providence and power. That he has, he has placed us in, in, in the workplace in which we work, in, in the towns, in the cities in which we live. He is sovereign. And... You know, the older you get, the easier it is, is to see God's providence as you look backwards. You, we see providence in the past. We don't see it so much in the future or the present. We see it when we look backwards. And we say, oh, I never thought I'd be living here. never thought I'd be in this job. But I thank God that I am here, and, and he's led me here. And I can see his hand. And we honor him by embracing that. One commentator, he writes this, he are to see their service as service rendered not to men but to the Lord. This would transform the most menial responsibilities and give dignity to all of their work. It's interesting. You ever go in, in what society might seem like a menial, low-paying job of, um, I guess, low dignity like fast food worker or um, some other janitor or whatever, and, and you, you see somebody working in one of those those jobs that may, uh, most of society may look down on and they're happy and they're joyful and they're doing it with um, almost sincerity and it like brightens your day. It, it's in many ways convicting. Sometimes I see a fast food worker or somebody and they're joyful and they're happy and they want to serve you and I'm like, man, I, I probably make twice as much as that person and you know, I'm just grumbling, I'm complaining and, you know, and they're happy, they're joyful, they seem like willing to serve. That's how we should be, whatever our job is. We should honor God with our attitude, with our service, because he has ordained your circumstances. Ecclesiastes 9, as Solomon says this, and you know, you probably have heard this verse, 
not memorize it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. And, you know, most of um, Ecclesiastes, the vanity of vanities, uh, the kind of the despair uh, of, of life. But Solomon is pointing to God's sovereignty and his providence that whatever your hand finds to do, wherever you find yourself, whatever work you find yourself in, do it with all your might. In a sense, you know, he's pointing forward to this passage. Do it, do it as for the Lord and not for men. Don't grumble or complain. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We, we, we shouldn't be grumblers. We shouldn't be malcontents. We shouldn't be complaining in our workplace. And, and I know I've been in several workplaces, several workplace situations where there's so many instances to complain, and sometimes legitimately. You need to be careful because people are watching us. And, you know, I, I, thankfully, I, I, I didn't mean... I, I remember uh, a couple situations where... Um, you know, in the military, someone is coming up, you know, I don't see you complaining. And Well, it's in my heart, but, you know, thank you. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that, thankful that I was a testimony. I was able to testify of my faith because of that. People are watching. Don't grumble or complain. Don't fantasize about greener pastures all day long that, you know, I'm just here for a year and then... Um, I'm moving on, and, and that may be the case. Yes, there are certain jobs. I, I remember, um, you know, one of my friends, he, he, he owned a coffee shop. He was talking, he's, he said, um, I, I just can't keep baristas. I'm like, well, you know, that's one of those jobs. It, it's not a career. Like, they're going to come and go. And, and, and some of us, we, we've had those jobs where, in a sense, we knew that it was only for a year or two, or this wasn't going to be a career. But at the same time, we, when we're there, we ought to work as, you know, I'm working here until I get another job, and, and until that day comes, I'm going to focus on um, being a good employee here. And I'm not going to fantasize all day long about where I'm going or idolize a, a, another um, job. Amy Michael, she says this, if by work discerning consider not spiritual work I can best help others and I inwardly rebel thinking it is the spiritual for which I crave when in truth it is the interesting and the exciting then I know nothing of Calvary love what she's saying is, is those, those menial um, jobs those um, uh, low-paying jobs or, or um, those jobs which aren't glamorous and, and especially aren't don't seem spiritual. She's saying if I rebel against doing that job or complain or grumble, then I'm actually not, I, I don't know anything about Calvary love, about God's love. I, I'm not honoring God in that moment. Because Christ came to serve and not be served. He did everything. Yes, he proclaimed the gospel. He did um, proclaim the kingdom. Um, that was primarily what he did was spiritual. But 
even in the little things, he honored the Lord. And, and he didn't come into public ministry until he was 30 years old. So up until that point, he had a job. He had a vocation. He honored God in that vocation as, you know, most would say a carpenter. It could actually be builder. He did all sorts of building, not just carpentry. He did do carpentry, but he honored God in his vocation. I'm sure he was the best builder, the best carpenter there was, and he tried to excel at his craft. That's how we are to work. We are to work as an act of worship to God. Martin Luther says this, he says, that the service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like, is without doubt but the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in church and by works done therein? The whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, field. Wherever you work. And as we talk about work, I mean, some of you might um, be tempted to think that this primarily um, speaks to the men. We're all called to work. Every single one of them. Even, you know, for, for a homemaker, you are working. And you are working in the home and you are to work in the home as an act of worship to God. If you're retired, Whatever you do around the house or, you know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. You know, whatever we do, wherever we find ourselves, whatever type of work, we have a small business or, you know, we're, we're just, you know, serving our neighbor, do it as unto the Lord. So we, we work for Christ by embracing his providence and power and then by entrusting yourself to his recompense. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Entrust yourself to his recompense, meaning his rewards, but also um, his vindication. And, and, you know, in this, this context to Colossians, yes, he's speaking primarily to slaves, but also to masters, which he'll address in, in chapter 4, verse 1, but primarily to slaves, and we can get the sense that um, there's probably a lot of slaves that are being oppressed, which more often than not, they were oppressed, they were demeaned, and he's in, sense, in a sense in this verse giving them hope, that as you work heartily for the Lord, remember that you will receive um, a reward, that there are rewards you will be vindicated. You entrust yourself to his recompense for rewards and honor, for vindication, and even for future employment in the kingdom. You remember uh, uh, Jesus' parable of the servants and the minas and how he gave um, one ten minas and one five minas and then one one mina. And then, you know, we see, you know, the two were faithful and they made more. They, they used their, in a sense, their abilities, their opportunities to make, to, to produce more for the Lord. And they gave it back to him as a gift. And then at, at the end of each, you know, the one with the ten and one with the five, he says, he says, you will have authority over ten cities. You will have authority over five cities. 
There's a sense that that's pointing uh, forward to future employment in the kingdom. That when, when we get to the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom, that we're not, we're not just going to sit around. We're going to work. And, and, you know, we look at work um, sometimes negatively here because of the curse, but work was given in the garden before the curse, before sin entered. Work is good. The curse, sin, just makes work harder. It makes it difficult. And that's where some of us, you know, we, we can be tempted, well, if I just find the right job or the right career that I love, then everything will be great and I'll just love to do it and things will be easier. Um, that's not entirely the case. There's always going to be thorns and thistles. There's a, even the best of jobs has um, difficulties. Yes, we should work in that career, that job that is most fitted to our abilities, our skill level. Um, but there's, there's always going to be downsides wherever you work. So you need to entrust yourself to, um, to God's recompense, to his, that there is rewards in the future. You know, the, the premier examples of slaves in the Bible, as I, I, I said earlier, is, is Joseph and Daniel. Look at Joseph and, and, and Joseph, you know, at the end, he, he tells his, his brother, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And all throughout, he, he worked, he was honorable, he was sincere, he was genuine, he, he sought um, to support his master, whatever master he was under, and he was praised for it. And then even Daniel, we, we, we don't, you know, many... You know, some of us, we might not think of Daniel as a slave, but he was. He was taken away with, with all the other uh, young Jewish noble. The, 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 because he was the best and the bright, he was elevated to a higher position, but he was nonetheless a slave. And even, uh, you know, the, the king, um, before throwing him into the lion's den, the king didn't want to do it. Because he was, Daniel was such a good servant, such a good slave, such a good worker, that he wanted to keep him. Even though Daniel had, had different views and worshipped the one true God, and this pagan king did not, you know, believe those views, he still, he still respected and um, he loved Daniel in a sense because he was a good, honest worker. This is the type of worker's that we are to be. We are to obey your boss, work for Christ. And then third, remember God's justice. Remember God's justice. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. There's no partiality. What he's saying is that, you know, you're ultimately, as he alluded to before, that you are serving the Lord Christ, ultimately, because he is sovereign. He has providentially placed you in your workplace, in your, uh, the circumstances in which you live and move and have your being. So remember who you work for. Remember who you work for. You are to obey your earthly master, your boss, but remember that God is sovereign, that he has placed you there, and that you ultimately work for Jesus Christ. You work for the judge of the whole universe. You know, as many workplaces, we say, you know, there's the little boss and the big boss. 
you know, the little bosses, you know, the one directly over you, and then there's usually a hierarchy of bosses. Well, you know, God is the big boss, you know. He's the big, big boss. And, and you know, yes, we, I don't mean to compare him to all the other lesser bosses, but he is sovereign. We're ultimately working for him, whatever we do. And we need to remember that he is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he is omnipotent. In Psalm 139 and, and, and many other uh, passages in the Bible say that he knows all things, he is, he is everywhere, he is all-powerful. If he wants to change our circumstances, he can. He leads us, he, he knows our thoughts. He, he knows the bosses that we work for. He knows what we go through. And He is holy and just. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 18 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He will... He will bring about justice. He will vindicate you. He knows your suffering in your workplace, but he also knows your complaining. He knows it all. He knows all the circumstances. So, you know, even if you're suffering under a harsh and insensitive boss or, or you're in a workplace which is immoral and foul, you entrust yourself to him. You work for him. You honor him. You remember that he is, he knows all things, that he is holy and just, that he is faithful and loving. Remember who you work for. And second, remember his promise of judgment. That he will bring every act into judgment. He will ju- he'll bring judgment upon all evildoers, upon the unregenerate, the unbelieving, and, and at the end of the age. Remember his promise of judgment that, that he, even as, as Jesus said, He will judge you for every careless word. His judgment is perfect. And so that, on one hand, ought to, um, in a sense, uh, cause us to um, fear and tremble, but also give us comfort in the fact that, you know, if we're doing everything righteous and sincere and we're being faithful and genuine, that, that He will vindicate us. He will vindicate us. Peter says this in, in 1 Peter. He, he writes to, people, to believers who are, are, are suffering under persecution. He says this, 1 Peter 2 and verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, when you're mistreated or wronged in your workplace, sometimes you just need to take it and move on. Remember who you work for. Remember God's justice. So we are to 
obey your boss, work for Christ, God's justice, and then treat people right and fair. Treat people right and fair. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven. You know, if you're, if you're in a position of authority, you have people under you, or you own a business, and you hire people, you need to treat them justly and fairly. You need to treat them right. And you do that first and foremost by putting yourself in their position. This is what this verse is alluding to. You put yourself in their position. That though you are a master, though you are a boss, though you are um, the authority figure, there's a higher authority that you are accountable to, especially as a believer. You know, there's a sense that, you know, um, Christian businessmen or, or business owners or um, people in positions of authority, you need to be even more careful about your testimony than, than the uh, Christian worker or, or the one that's um, you know, lowest on the totem pole, so to speak. You need to be very careful if you're in a position of, of leadership and authority or you're a business owner because more people are watching you about how you treat people. You need to treat them right and fair. You need to um, put yourself in their position. Remember um, the, the, those days and those jobs in which you were the lowest person on the totem pole. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14 says this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. You, know, you, need, you need to do what's, what's right and just and fair if you are uh, a master, in a sense, if you are a business owner. I've heard, of, um, you know, I've heard this in, in businesses, um, secular and, and even you know, owned by Christian um, men or women, that um, when times got tough, they did the right thing. They paid their employees before they paid their bills, before they could pay themselves. They went without so that their employees would get paid. And that's the right thing to do. You take care of your people, they'll take care of you. Take care of them. Think how you would like to be treated. The golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Put yourself in their shoes. Do... You know, treat them as you would like to be treated. Do what is best for them. Give them respect, dignity. Train them. Don't, don't um, you know, sit back and, 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 and let them figure it out on their own. Give them opportunities for advancement. Discipline them if necessary. Yeah, that is a form of love that sometimes you have to correct somebody just like you have to correct a child. Give them rewards, encouragement. Give them grace. Lead like Jesus does. Lead like he, he does. Serve. Sacrifice. Second, you know, put yourself in their position, but second, know that you are in their position. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 
No one is, in a sense, is saying no one that is above the law. No one is above the law of God. You serve the master over all creation. He has placed you in your position. However, high or low, all authority is from God. And he will hold all masters accountable. As he will hold all slaves accountable, all free men. And there's a sense that, you know, all throughout the Bible we see this slave master, not just because of the reality of slavery, but it points to a greater truth. That not just Paul, but, you know, Moses, uh, Jesus, almost every writer in the Bible uses slavery as an illustration of our spiritual state, as our spiritual condition. And slavery is, is um, you know, it, it's, it's a theme throughout Israel's history. They're continually reminded that they were once slaves in Egypt. And that, that imagery is brought forth in the, to, into the New Testament as we think of salvation, as we think of the, the gospel, that we are all slaves in a spiritual sense. We all come into this world slaves to sin. And then even as we're, we're converted, we're born again, we're still slaves, but we're, now we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to righteousness. We all have a master. We serve that master in a physical sense, in a natural sense, but most importantly in a spiritual sense. And if you don't understand this concept of slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness, maybe, maybe you don't understand that you either once were a slave to sin or you still are. And you're blind to the fact that you are a sinner, worthy of God's justice, of his wrath, of his punishment. And if you don't feel, in a sense, this, this um, urge, this desire, this striving for righteousness, as if we're, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we who weren't once were slaves to sin are now slaves to righteousness, that you are a slave to righteousness, that you are to serve your good and righteous master and are to pursue holiness and you long for holiness, then you may be still in your sins. You may be unconverted. We have a master. We have a master in heaven. And he is a good master. He is a kind master. He is a loving master. And, and this is where, you know, the, the, all the negative um, connotations and, and, and um, images of slavery can be turned into a, a positive sense when we understand who our master is. He is good and perfect. He is loving. He is kind. He is faithful. He is just. He is holy. Who would, want, who, who would not want to be a slave to this master who takes care of all our needs, physical, natural, and spiritual? We are to honor him in all that we think, say, and do. And we are to do that in the workplace, in the home, and in our individual lives because he is our master and Lord. Heavenly Father, we all must admit, we, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we want to be our own master. We want to live our lives according to our will, um, to do whatever we want, wherever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. 
It's the effect of the fall. And we want to live however we want to live, as if we were the master of ourselves, the king of our lives, in a sense, our own creator. But you have created every one of us for a purpose, for a reason. You reign over all creation. You are the creator, and so what you say goes. And just as we we think about that notion, it, it bristles against our flesh that we want to be free to do ever what we want, but you are good. And so submitting to you, trusting you, following you, serving you is good. You are good. Your, your ways are good and upright, righteous. So Lord, help us. Help us to submit in every way to your instructions, to your commands, that we may be pleasing to you and honor you in all we think, say, and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.